Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash memorymotel. There you can find over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, visit audibletrial.com slash memorymotel. Enjoy your free audiobook. In the late 1980s, the author Eric Marcus set out to record the oral history of the gay civil rights movement in America. So I had terrible anxiety over not being able to complete the project or that something would happen to me on a flight from one place to another. So every time I had to fly somewhere, I made backup discs of all the material that I had. I did a letter from my editor explaining where I was in the project and what needed to be done next because I didn't want my death. I can't believe I thought of that. I didn't want my death to kill the project. This had to be done. I felt such responsibility to these people, most of whom had never had their stories told or they had been long forgotten. And almost all of them had been forgotten. And hearing their voices takes me right back to those moments, to sitting with them and talking with them. There's something about sound that touches me. I just can't remember. And I remember. Can't remember. This. I remember even. I do remember. He said this. He said those stories were the essence of it was like what it was to be alive. Was Can you trust that? Is that light always on? I was just thinking. How I did my my tape check. What is your last name? Interviewed by Terrence Mickey. Interview subject is Eric Marcus. Tape one, side one. Eric's research became his book, Making Gay History. And after 25 years, we revisit with him three selections from the over 100 interviews he recorded to hear the voices of those who shaped LGBT history. So when I started on my research for Making History... The original edition was called Making History, Not Making Gay History, because people were afraid of including the word gay at my publisher. I didn't know that I came from a very proud people and a very courageous people, um, and I was outraged that I didn't know my history. We were not the fairies I heard described. We were not the fearful, cowering people I heard us described as. These were tough people. That Why didn't I know this? Why didn't anyone tell me that there was this this proud history with these extraordinary people um, living through the most unimaginable to me difficult times. I made a list of the people I needed to get to first, the really old people and the men who were dying from AIDS. I called the two guys who owned the gay bookstore in Denver, and I, I said, I've, I've read that there was a Madison Society chapter in Denver in the 1950s. Do you know anyone who was involved? The Manishing Society was founded in 1950 in Los Angeles by five guys meeting behind uh, literally drawn blinds. They came up with this idea that gay people were an emergent culture and that it was possible to change the way things were. Uh, they had discussion groups all through Los, An Los Angeles, then it spread to other parts of the country. And he said, well, you're, while you're here, you should talk to Wendell Sayers. Wendell. Um, attended a few Madison meetings in the late 1950s. 
I walk up to Wendell's house. It's a tidy lawn, a couple of steps up to the front door. I ring the bell. Wendell opens the door, and I have a vivid memory of him standing there with a beautiful smile. He was wearing pressed gray slacks, polished black shoes, black belt, shiny black belt, white shirt pressed, and uh, a tie. This was a man who had clearly worked for what he had. He was the first black uh, man to work for the attorney general's office in Denver. He was warm, he was engaging, and he was very eager to answer my questions. No one had asked. But he asked right up front, can you use a different name? I don't want word getting back to my family in Kansas that I'm gay. Whether he heard it or how he found it out, somebody must have told him. What did your dad hear? He didn't tell me. He told me things. He told me that he had heard that I was not natural sexually. He said, we'll go to uh, to Mayo Clinic, get your examinations, and see if we can find out what caused it, what to do about it. So he puts mother and I in the car, and we go up to uh, Minnesota. Minnesota. That was back in the days. Couldn't get a place to stay. You couldn't get a place to eat. Because you're black. Because you're black. So. What did you do? Buy crackers and bologna and in the store and take them out and eat them. Stuff like that. Where did you sleep? Got a tent. We got one of these uh, 10 by 12 tents. And we stayed in the tent at night. Take all of that and put it together. It's awfully hard on anybody care whether he's white or black, green or yellow. Right. That kind of pressure is terrific. How old were you then? I was still quite young. Were you still in high school? Yes, I think I was still in high school. You must have been terrified. I was terrified. Now they had me in the hospital for in and out for several days. Did they ask you questions? Oh, yes. All kinds of questions. They determined that I was homosexual and that there was nothing they could do about it. When Wendell told me that he was taken to the Mayo Clinic to be diagnosed and that he was diagnosed as a homosexual and that he was told that he should be incarcerated, I can hear in my own voice in the interview my shock at, as I said, incarcerated? Really? Now, now I know that to be the case, but I was discovering all of these things as I was interviewing people. After the interview, we went to, he took me to lunch uh, at a diner near his house, and he asked that we sit in the far corner because he didn't want anyone to overhear our conversation. I thought about Wendell a lot over the years um, because of what he said to me on the steps of his house as I was leaving. He was lonely. I knew he was lonely. He had two friends in his church who were gay um, who figured out he was gay. They were much younger. Um, they died of AIDS. And he'd never really had a, a long relationship and had always wanted one, at least not a long adult relationship. So as I was saying goodbye to him, he's standing in his doorway. I've stepped down two steps onto the sidewalk. And he said, do you think it's too late for me to meet someone? He said, not for sex. He said, just really for a companion. 
And I know I said something like something lame, like, well, it's, it's never too late. Um, but he was 83 and for him, given where he was in his life, that he couldn't be open about who he was, the odds were not great that he'd ever meet someone. And uh, as far as I know, he didn't. He was in his 90s when he died. I remember reading about Dr. Hooker. So she compared 30 gay men to 30 straight men and got the best psychiatrist scientists to evaluate her files and her tests. At the time that Dr. Hooker was doing her study, any psychiatrist would have told you that looking at the projective tests she did on these men, he could tell who was a homosexual and who wasn't. So you got the best Rorschach guy and another guy, and they went through, their, went through the files. And she said, they couldn't tell. So she presented her study in 1956 at the American Psychological Association Convention in Chicago, upending the common assumptions. And her conclusions were not very welcome by a lot of people. Um, there were some psychoanalysts who wanted her dead. You can trace her presentation in Chicago to the 1973 overturning of the American Psychological Association's listing of homosexuality as a mental illness. What means most to me, I think, is, um, excuse me while I cry. If I went to a gathering of some kind, gay gathering of some kind, I was sure to have at least one person come up to me and say, I've wanted to meet you because I wanted to tell you that what you saved me from. I'm thinking of, of a woman, a young woman, who came up to me in a meeting and said that her parents, put, when they discovered that she was a lesbian, put her in a psychiatric hospital and that the standard procedure in that hospital was uh, electroshock, but that her psychiatrist was familiar with my work and he was able to keep them from giving it to her. With tears coming down her face. I know that, well, <laughs> I know that wherever I go, whether I know it or not, that there are both men and women for whom my little bit of work and my caring enough to do it has made an enormous difference in their lives. So I feel that that's my monument. It's a hell of a monument. Yes, it is. Dr. Hooker didn't come up with this idea herself. I didn't know. I just assumed she just applied for a grant. She did her study. She tells me the story about her friend Sam Fromm, a young man who was taking a class with her at UCLA. She was taking the trolley home, um, so he offered to drive her. So they became friends, and I realized in her telling me the story that he was scoping her out. He had a plan for Dr. Hooker. And she said, over time, she said they let their hair down. He had a, a companion who I think he referred to as his cousin initially, and he wasn't. He was George. So in 1947, Sam invited 
Dr. Hooker and her husband to go to San Francisco for Thanksgiving. Sam and George take uh, Dr. Hooker and her husband out to Finocchio's, a female impersonator club, and Dr. Hooker couldn't believe what she saw. After they went to Finocchio's, they went to, I think it was the Fairmont, for drinks. And while they're having drinks, Sam, who must have been in his 20s at the time, maybe 30, says to Dr. Hooker, we have let you get to know us, and now it is your duty, your moral obligation, to show the world that we're not what they say we are. And he wouldn't let her go, not for this young gay man who brought Dr. Hooker into his circle, made her a friend. She would not have felt the obligation to do this study. No one knows who Sam Fromm is. He's disappeared from history. She remembered him. I think there is value, enormous value, in knowing that where you are as a gay person, as an LGBTQ person, was not accidental. That we are where we are now because of individuals. When you know where you came from, when you know that the way you live now came about because of people who actively worked to make things different, gives you the power and the knowledge that you are an actor as well, that you can make change, that if you're not happy with something now, if you're not happy with, with how things are in your community, if you're an LGBTQ person or if you're any other kind of person, you can look at this as a roadmap. And by knowing these people's stories and what their experiences are, we can imagine a future that is different from what might be. And we can plot how we can get there. And we know that people before us did exactly that. It was messy. They didn't always get where they wanted to go. But I think of Lisa Ben, whose real name was Edith Hyde. And in 1947, she published what she called the first magazine for lesbians called Vice Versa, America's Gayest Magazine. Wrote it in her office, typewriter, typed it through twice on using five pieces of carbon paper. She wrote an essay about the world that she imagined for gay people one day. She dared to imagine it. If you can't imagine a future, you can't get there. Edith Eyde did these extraordinary things. She died in 2015. There wasn't a single obituary, not in gay publications, not in straight publications. I didn't know until months after she died that she had died. I tried to get some obits placed, couldn't. What makes me feel good is that I can tell her story again, and now I can help her tell her story in her own voice. And what a beautiful voice it is. And to know what she did, a secretary at RKO Pictures in 1947, that she had the balls to do these things. She did it because she was angry. Because she was angry at being demeaned. And she wasn't going to put up with it. It's a lesson for us all. Oh, I'd write the, at the end the, the, the column, and that was just ideas that happened off the top of my head that I would write about and say, wouldn't it be wonderful if, or, uh, you know, I'd just sort of uh, uh, fantasize about, not, not fantasize exactly, but... Imagine. Imagine, thank you, um, uh, about how things might be in the future with us. What were some of the things you imagined? Well, I imagine that perhaps we would have a lot of magazines <laughs> and that perhaps even movies might be made about us. And uh, uh, I would hope that someday 
we would not be looked down on with so much disdain and uh, things of that nature. What do you think you're giving to yourself by revisiting these old tapes? This is embarrassing to tell. I was eager to get away from my gay work. I didn't want to be a professional homosexual, as I called it. Uh, It's my internalized homophobia. Being gay, doing gay stuff was part of who I was, and I felt a a great need to do things that, that were about other aspects of myself that were bigger, that I perceived to be bigger. And I made judgments about the gay work, that it wasn't as good, there was stigma around it. Um, And I was exhausted after doing a couple of books, answering stupid questions. Now with homosexual choice in our personal story segment, with us is Eric Marcus, the author of Is It a Choice? So can homosexuals change if they want to? Anyone can change if they want to. Uh, But the the key here is that we all are born with or develop feelings of attraction at some point early in life. Those feelings are our own, whether we have them for the person of the the same gender, the opposite. So I decided I was done with the gay stuff. I gave my uh, collection to the New York Public Library, including my hundreds of tapes from from making history. I was going to do other things. I had the opportunity to revisit this work. And I was completely taken in by it again. I don't, I like to think after 23 years of therapy, my internalized homophobia is under control. Um, and mostly it is. Um, mostly, not entirely. I don't think it'll ever be entirely under control because I have memories of growing up gay in the 1970s. It wasn't, wasn't so, so much fun. But revisiting this material has been so life-affirming. Um, if my mother were alive, she'd, she'd be thrilled to hear me use that term. But it really has made me feel as if I, if I did one thing in life, I recorded these stories. And I have the astounding privilege of sharing these memories, not mine, these memories of people who lived, who were important, um, whose stories might not have otherwise been told. And in sharing these stories, I know that there are young people today and young people for decades, maybe generations to come, who will know about their history. And they won't have to grow up the way I did, feeling as badly about themselves as I did, thinking I was alone, I was the only one in the world. But I really do feel these people there in my head saying, tell our stories, share our stories. We've We've given these to you, and you have a responsibility to tell our story. And um, it makes me feel, it makes me feel great about my 30-year-old self. makes me feel good about having lived long enough to do this. Um, And contrary to how I might have felt about it in the past, it feels like my life's work. A big thank you to Eric Marcus and Sarah Burningham, who co-produced the new podcast, Making Gay History, which you can find on iTunes. A special thank you to Aaron Hicklin, editor-in-chief of Out Magazine, for the introduction to Eric and Sarah. 
And thanks as always to everyone on the Memory Motel team. Now for my plea to ask you, and you know who you are, to please write a review on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, sign up for our newsletter, and tell a story on our pitch hotline. If any of these stimulating activities interest you, please visit our website, memorymotel.audio, for all the relevant info and other curiosities. Until next time, I can't wait to see what you find when you go back.